Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. Today we'll be joining in the celebration of End Beyond's 30-year anniversary as we listen to some conservation legends describe how the company has decided to mark this milestone by launching a series of limited edition experiences. Designed to help trace how End Beyond has used the decades since its launch to help make its world a better place, the itineraries mark the company's conservation achievements and combine some of the world's most iconic species with behind-the-scenes access to conservation experts that range from marine biologists to wildlife translocation specialists and more. In this podcast, we listen to the experts who will be hosting these extraordinary journeys, describe the events that inspired them. First up is Nicole Robinson, End Beyond Chief Marketing Officer, who will talk about how End Beyond's vision of travel done responsibly has been brought to life. Thank you so much for joining us. So we're celebrating our 30th anniversary. It's really meaningful to us as people in the organization that have been here a long time. But but what about a 30th year anniversary is meaningful to, I guess, our clients and, and our other stakeholders. And in this exploration, we found a quote about time who said that we should treat time as a scarce resource and spend it carefully. And so we had a look back at how we spent our time and we decided to create a range of meaningful experiences that we could invite others to celebrate where we have used our time to leave our world a better place. Going back to the beginning, we acknowledged that our current impact model was created by our founders who had a vision that travel done responsibly could benefit the land, wildlife and people in the space that we operate. They started with this crazy idea of rewilding four derelict farms in rural pre-1994 South Africa. And in doing this, decided that it could not be achieved without making the wildlife relevant economically to the communities surrounding those farms. This vision in 1991 was not aligned with the rest of the world's mindset at that time. Most operations then would look to build a higher fence rather than along the table. It made us have a look, I guess now, at the definition of sustainability. And by definition, sustainability requires time as a test. For us, this past 30 years has been our test of time, and we have the privilege of celebrating the conservation and community initiatives that started 30 years ago and are still in operation. We went from Africa, those four farms in South Africa, and our platform has now extended into Asia in 2006 and South America in in 2015. Through the years of this journey, we also reflected at the power of collaboration. And for each one of our pillars of care of the land, wildlife and people, we have partnered with some incredible organizations. And many of those are included in the experiences that we're going to take you through. Joss, our CEO, often quotes the African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that has rung incredibly true of our story as well. Just deep diving a little bit into some of these partners. The Africa Foundation was started in 1992, a year after and beyond then known as Conservation Corporation Africa or CC Africa was formed. It was called the Rural Investment Fund at the time, and it was formed as our community development partner. In 2017-2018, we partnered again with Africa Foundation to create the program Oceans Without Borders, of which one of the journeys we're going to go into today is based on. We've had a long-standing relationship with 
with Africa Parks, where some of the animals that were returned to Pinda have done well enough to create sustainable populations that could be extracted on to create new populations in other parks around Africa. And then Tompkins Conservation, who have a similar tenure to us around 30 years on a South American context. We've done some advisory work with them in South America as part of exporting our model onto that continent, which Les will take you through a little bit later. In 2017, we realized we hadn't really told our impact story really, really much. And and most of the reason for that had been is that our team had never felt like anything was ever finished. You know, sustainability is a big word and it has very many facets and lots of terminology and jargon. And they never felt like they could say anything was done. And so we came up with with a construct of creating goals for 2020 that we could work towards as an organization. We are about to launch... In September, our 30th anniversary impact review, where we celebrate the achievements that we were able to do by focusing on those nine goals over the last four years. But we also launch our Vision 2030, which is our big, chunky, hairy five pillars that we're focusing on as an organization over the next 10 years. We've created milestone goals to 2025, and those will be in the report that we launch in September. So... It's been 30 years and quite a journey. We're going to focus today on 2015 with Pinder donating lines to Apigera. We're going to focus in on 2018 where Oceans Without Borders was created when we ventured into, into South America. There are many milestones along the way and there's many more stories to tell. This batch of journeys is just the first batch. We will be launching through the rest of the year other sets of experiences that help tell some of our impact stories. I'm excited for you to meet some of my favorite storytellers as we celebrate these journeys. First off is Dr. Tessa Hemson, who has a PhD in coral reef ecology from James Cook University. For me, Tessa has a combination of deep insight from many years of study, but can explain it to me in such a way that I get excited and passionate about the ocean. So over to you, Tess. Well, thank you, Nicole. That was a really lovely intro. Thank you for this opportunity to to share some of our world with you and what we're excited about in these new journeys. As Nicole said, just over three years ago now, we took this the success of this impact model and 30 years of experience in conservation migrated that into the ocean. And that led to the formation of the Oceans Without Borders program, which I have the privilege of leading It's a very dynamic intersectoral partnership between and beyond and their not-for-profit community development-focused partner, Africa Foundation. And the program spans an extent of 3,000 kilometers of African coastline currently, which covers the marine footprint of and beyond. So from Lemba Island in the Zanzibar archipelago, and then down through Mozambique, which includes Vermezia Island in the north, Benguera Island further south, and then down into the South African coastline, Isimangaliso, and beyond. Central to this vision for Oceans Without Borders, while we focus very much on conservation and monitoring and community development, a core part of that is the vision to immerse our guests in these really astounding wild watery environments in an attempt to inspire, to educate, and to build an awareness about the really tangible ways that each of us can influence marine conservation on a daily basis from wherever we live in the world, and in so doing, help leave our oceans a better place. For me, one of the the really, really exciting opportunities in marine conservation 
is the fact that we don't have to live on the coastline to, to impact the health of our oceans. So much of the health of our oceans is actually reliant on actions that happen many thousands of kilometers away from, from the ocean in our daily lives. So we can directly influence the well-being of our oceans by the choices we make on a daily basis, the things we choose to buy, how much we consume, the way we choose to travel. And it is all very much centered around the theme of connectivity in our oceans. Our oceans are fundamentally connected to each other through the watery masses that flow around our globe, through our, our actions and ecosystems we inhabit. This journey, this greatest marine migration expedition is a incredible opportunity to immerse our guests in a truly spectacular marine experience to firsthand experience the connectivity of our oceans at a truly grand scale. So if there was ever a way to be blown away and inspired by our oceans and, and directly experience connectivity, then the sardine run and this greatest marine migration expedition is most certainly it. The journey begins on a very wild and dramatic coastline. This is the wild coast, otherwise known as the Transkei. They're just these incredible, dramatic coasts with waterfalls falling off into the ocean and these hills that are covered in lawns and these flowering aloes that kind of roll into the sea. Just offshore, the water is literally teeming with life. It's, it's really something to behold. This is all driven by these, these huge shoals of sardines and other bait fish that every year in the winter in South Africa follow the cold waters up the east coast and aggregate along this coastline between the Eastern Cape and KwaZulu-Natal. And along with these, these big shoals of fish come predators. So these predators are drawn from many, many thousands of kilometers away across the ocean. And for a brief moment, for a few months, um, not even months, very often it's, you know, it's a concentration of weeks, the short space of time, there's this huge abundance of food on this coastline and this intensity of life that is just absolutely, it's a mind-blowing experience. To get into it, we need to get out on the water. Every morning, we head out on a, a semi-inflatable boat just after first light. So it's a bit like a game drive. You head off in those very early morning hours are, are the really productive, exciting time when things happen. And at the same time, our eye in the sky, so our microlight pilot launches up into the air and he's going scouting to look for, for the action. And the way he spots us or what he's looking for is these concentrations of birds or of dolphins or any kind of predation kind of happening in this really concentrated patch. And that's the signal that there's likely to be a bait ball. And then he radios down to the boat and we can go and investigate. The dolphins, they're the real architects of these bait balls. So dolphins are incredibly energetic. They can put on these speeds of you know, over 30 kilometers an hour and they're very impressive in terms of the way they work together. So incredibly cooperative. So they carve off these, these smaller shoals of fish from the main shoal and herd them all together into these dense schools which we call bait balls. And once the dolphins have created that really kind of tight school of fish, then they're birds that rain down in their thousands, so gannets and skewers and albatrosses and all sorts of birds, just thousands of them rain down and attack the fish from above. And then from below, these poor fish are being attacked by sharks and often whales and all sorts of things coming at them from the bottom. And it's just this frenzy of feeding that goes on. And these events can be, they can appear for a matter of seconds and be gone again, or they can stabilize for, for a number of hours. And when you get these stable bait balls, that's the really special opportunity for us to slip into the water, grab a camera, and just sit back and watch the action. While these bait balls get a huge amount of their attention, they're actually very, very small component of this overwhelming marine wildlife experience. 
from the boat, you're often surrounded by schools of thousands and thousands of dolphins, literally. You can hear their clicking and squeaking and whistling from the boat. And under the water, it's almost deafening sometimes. There are whales that um, migrate up from the Southern Ocean annually. So they come all the way from Antarctica, heading up to the warm waters on the equator, where they give birth and um, raise the young for a few months. And fortuitously, their northward migration aligns exactly with the sardine run event. So much of the time that you're out on the ocean, you are chaperoned by whales, breaching, tail slapping, waving their huge pectoral fins. And it's just a, a truly remarkable display. And beyond marine passion and focus on marine conservation and recognition of the importance of conserving our ecosystems as a whole, actually began long before Oceans Without Borders, when the dream of Pinda was first realized. And the focus then was on the marine ecosystems of the Isimagaliso World Heritage Wetland Park. So to finish off our expedition, we head north back to where it all began, to Pinda. And for the last day of the, the journey, we spend a day on the ocean, exploring the wild, vibrant reefs of the, the Sidwana Bay coral reef ecosystems. And this is where I really first fell in love with marine ecosystems in, in a truly intense way. <laughs> um, so a day there for me is just, it's, it's, it really goes back to the very beginning of it all. And one of the really exciting potential experiences that you, you stand to have in Sidwana is an interaction with these, these bottlenose dolphins. And they're, they're different to the huge schools of common dolphins that you mostly encounter on the Transkei coast. These ones are incredibly playful. They, they come and seek you out. They play with you. They'll, you know, do somersaults with you underwater. And spending a few moments engaging with these creatures is something that's nothing short of life-changing. Ending it off in Pinda gives you an opportunity to reflect on the connectivity of these ecosystems and how we need to view ocean conservation and the conservation of our wild environments as a whole and consider how they're connected to us and our well-being. And this is something I've spent many hours discussing with my friend and colleague, Simon Naylor, who has been part of the and beyond impact journey from almost the very beginning. So with 25 years in Pinda and spending 15 of those years managing the reserve, Simon has been responsible for a huge amount of the conservation and the impact and the change that has happened over those years. So Sai, over to you for the next exciting journey. Thanks, Tessa. I come to you from Pinda itself. The journey that I want to sort of share with you that 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 we've got planned is is one that I was personally involved in in 2015, which was the restoration of lions from Pinda to Akagera National Park in Rwanda. Yeah, just to sort of set the scene, if you didn't know where Pinda was, we're on this east coast of of South Africa. The journey itself was quite a remarkable journey. I mean, if you didn't know where Rwanda was, it's in Central Africa. It's about four and a half, five thousand kilometers away from Pinda. So quite a remarkable story is is the reintroduction of lions back into Akagera National Park. And this, as I said, took place in 2015. Rwanda has a very sad history in terms of conflict. And, you know, we all know about the genocide that took place there in, in 1994. And as a result of that, Akagera National Park in Rwanda lost all of its lions. They had lions there up until uh, uh, 1994. And so they went extinct. And the reason for that was the refugees that were returning after the conflict came back and basically took all, their, all the lions' prey. They, they uh, invaded the national park and, um, and lions disappeared. And that's kind of what we're going to experience is on this journey is the story of, of lion restoration in, in, in Pinda and the journey that these lions took to Rwanda in 2015. So basically, I just wanted to share with you what actually took place. It's slightly different to 
to the experience that that Tessa is is hosting is is this is something that was done historically, but I think the the purpose of of this journey is to immerse ourselves in in lion conservation and how the two parks are managing and conserving these these endangered. Well, they're not quite endangered yet, but but we believe that there's twenty thousand lions left in Africa. You know, we've lost about fifty percent of our lion population in Africa in the last twenty five years, and and Pinda has a, a a remarkable story of the reintroduction of lions into into this uh, sort of old farmland. And the story began with obviously the, the donation of these lions to, to Rwanda. And we selected certain individuals from three different prides. We had to choose these lions very carefully. And we decided to take them from different prides to increase the, the sort of genetic profile of, of these animals. Rem- remembering that in Rwanda, they they're going to become an isolated population there. So we wanted as much genetic diversity as possible. So we darted five lionesses. What that means is, is, is shooting them with a tranquilizer dart, and then we would place them into our bomas or enclosures. And we kept them there for about a month just to acclimatize firstly to, to one another, and then also just to prepare them for the journey, the long journey to Rwanda. And then, yeah, in June 2015, we then prepared these lionesses for the long journey. What was also very, very key for us was to ensure that we, we sent healthy lions. You know, and here we are checking for, for various feline diseases. Lions, even wild lions, do pick up a number of diseases that obviously, you know, you don't want to send lions to start a new population that are, are unhealthy. Unfortunately, the lions that we have at Pinda are some of the most healthiest and genetically diverse lions in, in, in South Africa. And then the, the journey itself, basically, we would have to redart these, these lionesses and we designed and built special crates that they would need to sort of stay in for, for their 24-hour journey to, to Rwanda by plane. These crates, there's a little sort of box inside there so that these lions, we would, uh, obviously they go in sleeping, but we would wake them up so that they're not sleeping the whole journey. So they're fully awake, but obviously sedated to keep them calm. But we could water them and, and we don't feed them on the, on the journey. They were transported to Johannesburg by road where they then went onto a plane, went through customs, can you believe it, and immigration. And then they arrived in Rwanda 12 hours later. And what was quite amazing, you know, lions had been extinct in, in Rwanda for about 15 years. And there was a lot of excitement about these lions. And the whole country got very, very excited about these lions coming back after, you know, being absent for, for so many years. And this offloading of the crates in Kigali off the aircraft, and then they proceeded to, to drive them to Akagera National Park. So what's very important is before they release, they spend uh, about two, three weeks acclimatizing to to their new home in a, in, a, in, a, in a boma again, and they were fed there. And what was quite remarkable is how these lionesses bonded with each other. They, they all unrelated, which sort of disproves the, the theory that, you know, you can't put uh, unrelated lions together, and that would form the nucleus of this new population. And what's really incredible is, is how, they've, um, how they've done uh, in their career. Um, it's obviously been six years now, and through close monitoring in, in Akagera National Park, you know, the population has now reached about 40, 40 individuals. And a lot of work has been done on, on, on monitoring them and, and research. The whole journey has been incredibly successful. And what's quite amazing about this whole story is, is Pinda did exactly what Akagera did 30 years ago. There weren't any lions here on Pinda. A small uh, nucleus of animals was brought here. And the lions have done incredibly well here. We've had over 
uh, 100 litters, 200 births. And as a result, we've been able to sort of provide these these animals to other parks that where they've gone locally extinct as well. So I think the purpose of this journey, as I mentioned, is to sort of delve into the conservation and, and the management and the monitoring of lions, not just here in Pinda, but also in, in Akagera, and to follow the footsteps of these of these animals and to go and physically see these lionesses in Akagera National Park, to interact with the, uh, the conservation st- staff there at African parks. And so I think anyone that is attracted to lions and the conservation mm-hmm. of lions will not only get to see lions, but to sort of really get to understand the challenges that, that lions face in the wild and how they, they managed and, and obviously contribute towards the, the, the continued success of, of lion conservation in both these parks. So that's the journey that I'll be hosting and hopefully the folk and the guests that join us will, will leave with a much better understanding and appreciation of, of these incredible animals in Africa and our efforts to, to conserve them and, and make sure that they don't go extinct, which is where they're heading at the moment. Yeah, and so on that note, yeah, I'll hand over to my colleague, Les, Les Carlisle, who actually uh, needs no introduction. Les pioneered a lot of these techniques that, we, that we've used here on this journey and this reintroduction. And I mean, he started at, at Pinda 30 years ago and he's been with Anbeyond for 30 years. And so, yeah, I'll hand over to Les to continue. Fantastic. Thanks. If you look at the initial translocations that set Pinda up, the successes that we've had with those terrestrial conservation initiatives that started the, the Oceans Without Borders and Tessa's experience that she's alluded to, and then the direct impact at species level uh, that's happened with the rewilding of, of Pinda. And Simon's journey is going to take you through the potential that that has for export and the impact that it has across many different countries. And then the whole export of the Ambion model into different continents, first India and then South America. And I've got the privilege of hosting this trip into South America, which is really quite remarkable. With two different countries, we're going to Argentina and to Chile. And we're going to be looking at rewilding and the models that were developed at Pinda. And as Nicole said in the introduction, we were able to take our uh, experience from the rewilding of lions in Africa and advise Tompkins Conservation on the reintroduction of jaguar into the Ibera wetland in Argentina. And this is just the most remarkable place. It really is. And our connection with Tompkins Conservation came through their head of conservation at the time, a chap called Ignacio Jimenez. And Ignacio invited me to, to come across and participate in a workshop on the reintroduction of the jaguars into the Ibera wetland. So I was one of the specialist resources that was informing the Argentinian authorities, the NGOs, the local farmers. They assembled a large group of people, all the interested and affected parties that would be affected by this jaguar reintroduction. And we debated what the best way to do this reintroduction was. And it's been quite remarkable to see the actual success that they've had with the reintroduction. And the the Ibera wetland is very reminiscent of the Okavango Delta. This vast, flat expanse with waterways and islands, some of them just grassed, some of them with grass and vegetation, but the most spectacular habitat you can imagine, full of uh, capybara, which is the biggest rodent in the world, a prey species, obviously, for, for the reintroduced jaguars. And then Tompkins Conservation, being who they are and rewilding all of these uh, habitats, their primary objective is to take blocks of land that are, have conservation relevance, purchase them, rewild them, get them to the biodiversity levels that they were at 
historically and then hand them back to the state as national parks. So they recreate national parks and we'll be going through this journey with them of reintroducing pampas deer into this habitat. They had been locally extinct in this habitat, reintroducing giant anteaters, um, even reintroducing the birds that used to exist in the system, some of which have become extinct. And there's a remarkable uh, species called a red-legged cerema. It's like a, probably the same size as a hardida ibis or a goose in, in the UK, but it's got long red legs like an ostrich. So it's like a mini ostrich. And it's a, a, it's a predatory bird. And it walks around like a, a mini secretary bird in an African context. So this, this Tompkins Conservation Initiative called the Rewilding Foundation in Argentina has gone the whole nine yards of rewilding everything from birds through the prey species and then to the ultimate predators being uh, the jaguars that are rewilded into, into that habitat. It's quite remarkable uh, when you think about jaguars being the apex predators and how normally the apex predators are the first to be hit in any um, reintroduction situation. If we go back to the movement from Argentina, the, the trip we're going to take is going to be in the Ibera wetland, and then we're going to move across the Andes Mountains, across the volcanoes to Chile. And when you move across the mountains, obviously one of the things that happens is the, the habitat and the species all change. So coming from this unbelievable wetland in, in, in Argentina where the birds have got the most remarkable, there's a bird with this very strange tail. It's got half a standard straight quill with nothing on it, and then it's got this flared feather at the end. And it's called a strange-tailed tyrant, of course, because it's got this weirdly strange tail. So you're going from these incredible birds, this incredible reintroduction in a wetland, which is completely flat, to the highest peaks in, in the whole of South America in the Andes Mountains, and the incredible habitat change that takes place. And when we move into the Andes Mountains, you've got, you've got the Patagonian steppe full of huanacos, which are like wild llamas. And the predator in that particular area will be operating around Torres del Pine National Park is, of course, the, the puma. You have exactly the same situation in India when the tigers are uh, notified uh, or the, the tourists are notified by predators' presence by the alarm calls of spotted deer or, or monkeys in the trees. Exactly the same thing happens in, in Chile when we in the Patagonian steppe. You walk in these herds of massive herds of huanaco that are feeding on these mountain slopes below the snowcat peaks. And then you hear one konako will, will alarm call and you can have a look at where it's looking and you'll hear the others start alarming in the valley and they'll all be looking in the same direction. And when you spy down into the bottom of the valley, my experience was walking through the grass, a puma, the most amazing experience, a very similar system of notification and warning through all of the prey species happens in all three of the continents. So the export of the and beyond model has been remarkable in that we've been able to export it to like-minded partners in different countries. We'll be traveling with, with partners into this Torres del Pine region. We'll be operating with Tompkins Conservation, where the export of the conservation model has been so unbelievably successful. And then we'll round off our trip at Vera Vera, which is the and beyond lodge. So that's the export of the whole model into South America. And if you look at the very, very environment. It's, it's snow-capped volcanoes, absolutely crystal clear rivers, where you can see the bottom of the river from the boat. Quite remarkable. The and beyond hospitality applied at all of these unbelievable facilities and the interpretive experience that's provided by our guests. And we link into 
both the sustainability of the lodge and this incredible environment and the communities that make and have protected this environment, the Mapuche community in this particular case in the Lake District of Chile, where we end the journey. So a quite remarkable journey across two completely different countries, seeing completely different habitats, and all of this examples of the export of the unbelievable and beyond impact journey. And this journey will be a celebration of all of those impacts. For more on these exclusive limited edition expeditions, log on to endbeyond.com and click on small group journeys. And Beyond will be bringing out a number of additional experiences that help tell some of its impact stories until the end of the year. So keep an eye on the Beyond website or social media channels for more exceptional adventures.